good layer is built upon a good collect. So definitely it's all about the feed um, conversion, just putting that thing in the body weight before they really lay egg. A whole new era of communication in the poultry industry is coming. Now you have the brightest minds of the global poultry industry right in your pocket. And what's best? You can listen to all of them while driving to a farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. The Poultry Podcast Show is only possible with the support and trust of innovative companies like Fibro Animal Health Corporation. Healthy animals, healthy food, healthy world. AX3 Digest is a highly digestible source of protein with a low level of potassium, giving young animals a healthy start. Eastman works with you to accelerate your nutritional program innovation. Start your journey with us at Eastman.com. At JBI, we apply biosecurity innovation and expertise to keep your operation safe. Natural Biologics is looking deeper to find the natural solutions to your poultry health challenges. Welcome to the Poultry Podcast Show, a weekly podcast where you'll find cutting-edge insights and everything that's working in the global poultry industry. DSM strives to bring our customers efficient, sustainable poultry solutions, from essential vitamins like HYD to next-generation products like Hyphorius for efficient phosphorus utilization and Biofix to counteract naturally occurring metabolites in feed. Our portfolio is growing as we continue to bring innovation to the poultry industry. Visit dsm.com forward slash ANH to learn more about our newest solutions. Hi, everyone. Um, this is Karen Grogan, and I'm your host today for the Poultry Podcast Show. And I'm pleased to welcome um, from a couple of states over at Mississippi State University, um, Dr. Pratima Adhikari. Um, she has developed a, a growing research um, laboratory in nutrition um, there at Mississippi State. So, Pratima, why don't you tell us um, sort of your background and um, how long you've been at Mississippi State? Sure, Karen. Thank you so much. First of all, thank you so much for this opportunity. Um, this is wonderful to be able to talk about myself, my lab, and my research, and what we do down here. Um, so I'm an assistant professor. It's been a little bit over five years now. I joined this university or this department in poultry science. Um, my major area, which is my comfort zone, I would say, is later nutrition and gut health. So we've been doing anything from pullet feeding to all the way to extended leg. So trying to understand different genetics at the same time. So uh, my appointment is uh, 60% research and 40% teaching. So I predominantly do research, but then while in class, um, I do a poetry speed level course with a graduate and undergrad uh, management of commercial layers. Then each undergraduate rotational seminar that kind of rotates between the faculty here. Um, I also teach um, advanced level, which is only focused for graduate level, um, vitamin and mineral uh, part of nutrition, that course. That Alternate year, I teach uh, protein and carbohydrate metabolism. Um, I think that's all the classes I teach. But then I also do this individual DIS project, like right. graduates. Yep. Awesome. And um, so you you mentioned your sort of main focus area of your research is layer nutrition. 
And so um, let's start with with pullet nutrition um, because a good foundation sort of sort of gets you started. So, what are key areas that you're looking at in terms of pullet nutrition right now? That's a very good um, area there to discuss here because, as you can imagine, a good layer is built upon a good pullet. So. Definitely, it's all about the feed um, conversion, just putting that thing in the body weight before they really lay egg. So we would be looking anything from um, uniformity in body weight to all the way, just not to let that pullet grow too much, like obese, like not accumulate a lot of fat because we want to um, make sure our nutritional program is under control. Um, most of the time, I formulate my diet um, based off of the management diet, which we formulate, um, I formulate, all the diet myself here but still um you know going into that management guide and doing it but most of the time also we know these are kind of also um overestimated and they may not be just kind of you know we try to be on the similar to the management guide but what i do in this case is that getting a field um, nutritionist and industry get a help hey could you please look at my, my diets and then we go from there oh that is so valuable information that i can put it in my formulation and then i can do that kind of research in here. But definitely looking into this area of polite nutrition or feeding is that, you know, we need to make sure that the skeletal frame should be built up at first, right? We always go for this bone health and all stuff. Then after that, uh, and I would say that by 10 weeks of age, that frame has to be very good built upon. Then after about 13, 12, 13 weeks, most of this, like 95% of the body frame should be like that means like you have to be adding the muscles and trying to um, like develop the reproductive tract and uh, go from there. So in my formulation, uh, we do anywhere from, it just depends on a breed, but then also, for example, in Highline, uh, we go be very specific, like exactly like management guide. We have a starter one diet, starter two diet, then we go for the grower diet for a couple of like six, seven weeks. Then you go for another six week for a developer diet and then the layer diet. So in case of uh, like Henderish genetics, so we, you know, there has been like a whole starter diet, that's it. And then we can go to that grower, then kind of finish like in a broader diet, then go to the feeding the layer diet. Now, another area that has been really picked up on these days, which I realized that after talking to a lot of experts in the field, is that some people do pre-lay diet. It's kind of very narrow, we know, before lay. Some people do not do it. Just keep it directly from a developer to the layer. So that's kind of something, I don't know, I don't have an answer. I think anything either is fine. Um, but, you know, these are the things we need to be really thinking about is to, at first, starting with the higher protein, because you always need that at the very first, then go and reducing it, just at the level that when she starts to lay, then go for more protein again. I, I guess these are the major things things to look at, like feeding. And as you mentioned, you know, that, that bone structure is really important so that, so that it lasts sort of the duration. And we do see, you know, extended lay periods. Um, so, so what key, key parts of a formulation um, are you studying in, in that arena of, of bone structure? 
Yeah, that's a very good question. Um, most of the time, what we do in studying the bone structure and bone ash content is very simple. You do a tibia ash and look into these tibia bones and maybe a little bit in the femur side too, because both of these are longer bones. Um, and try to get that answer very quickly. I know you have to sacrifice a bar, but then like it's going to be, you know, most of us, we do that. Um, the other thing recently, what, which I have been, in fact, collaborating with University of Georgia with uh, my major advisors lab is the micro CT scan. We're also trying to understand the CT scan, of especially the femur bones, and trying to see the kind of modulation of the bone starting from that younger age. For example, as you know, the, the first formation would be a cortical bone, kind of more like a femur and tibia, then later on when she is ready to lay, then that medullary bone comes into the play and then um, constant modeling and then formation and degradation occurs, right? Because she has to lay the eggs and those things. Um, but then we also want to make sure that our structural bone in the pullets are, you know, we're kind of treating that number. Let's say, you know, we need to write this number, this is strength, and then, then we can predict I think this technique of CT scan would be something like uh, we can predict or we can even think about the interventions so we can bring in the bullet phase, hey, this is what we saw. Typically, this is what it looks like and what could be supplemented. So what could, what could we do to have a better nutrition or better growth? Um, so we are kind of starting to look at it. It's been only two projects, two kind of projects for the CT scan part. But then like most of the time, what I see myself is that by the body weight, by the, the chicken size itself, they are very small. We cannot put a lot of calcium because there's no no. But then what you can do is kind of looking into this interventions. Like it could be like, you know, gut health interventions. Like is that pre prebiotic? Is that something like a medium short-chain fatty acid? You're trying to promote a gut and then putting that portion of immune the bone health. So we have, there's a lot of things. I mean, again, that's why nutrition is very fascinating. <laughs> so right. I really love it. So um, it's just trying to understand that area. Um, the other part in really important in a bullet phase is that also looking into this coxie effect. So one of the studies we did um, um, last year, at end of last year, was that looking into this um, coccidiosis effect. Now, not just from the challenger study, but looking mm -hmm. at a kind of vaccine, which uh, this live oocyst we're giving. And they're all in cages. Poets are all in cages. Yeah. I'm trying to understand because that challenge in the first two, three weeks of their life, right? In cage. Um, now, trying to find those answers, some of the answers to the questions. And we're putting some interventions. Um, especially the medium and short-chain fatty acids combination and kind of looking into that, um, how they were doing one thing or how they were helping to maybe decrease an ulcer count and we mm. that called Stanley from fecal excretion. The other is directly looking into the intestinal permeability, um, different gene expression, uh, tight junction proteins. Um, then also looking into the micro um, <clears throat> structure of the tissue section. And we got this collaboration with a veterinarian um, out in Pearl, Mississippi. Um, our, we have a vet lab here. So Dr. Right. Maddie Armour helped us a lot in that. So it was a, a good project. And we're waiting for that obligation to be out. So it's going to be very exciting. A new concept we did, though, in this 
study was uh, we looked into a trickle dose vaccine effect, mm-hmm. just kind of constantly challenging them with this right. to create an immunity. That but, trickle dose has become pretty popular, um, especially in layers. Yes. They just have a hard time getting good coxie vaccine takes. Absolutely. So that, you know, that sort of even metered um, type of dose. Um, Absolutely. And then that is very interesting to see that. I mean, the effect was right there. For example, the control bird, just I'm saying a very general picture, the body weight, which is doing just meeting the guideline body weight, but then the challenge bird, and I mean, forget about the treatment, but it's still that challenge in the the positive control bird where having a very hard time, like they were catching up their weight for like two weeks later or more. So mm. very interesting. Yeah. So we're waiting to hear more. Find Great. More. Uh-huh. We'll have to keep, keep our, uh, <laughs> keep looking for that publication. You'll have to let us know when it's uh, published. Sure. We don't want to give away um, the results. Um, sure. And, and I, I think that's something that we have to, you know, balance is, you know, we, we do have to do some interventions to deal with, like, we need to create coccidia immunity, but we know we are having an impact. Um, and so I, I think that nutrition is important to balance to try to, to help us overcome, you know, some of those things. So another thing that we deal with in layers, and I think you also have a research background in, is salmonella and specifically enteritis. So how can nutrition um, help improve or um, help strengthen the gut in terms of dealing with um, salmonella? Yes, Karen, this is a very good question. And there's a very question that I think industry is trying to find a solution on for a long time. Right. Um, yeah, so let me tell a little bit background on what work we've been doing in salmonella here. Um, we've been very much able to produce a good successful model um, here in our animal biosafety level two. So we have a, a full-fledged um, BSL2 lab uh, where we could do all these bird trials, and it could be just changeable with um, a case trial, or if you'd like, you'd like to do a floor pin trial, we could do everything in here. But yes, for the last two years, in fact, it was one of my PhD students' project to establish a model. So we have been very successful. And then we also have been testing, like, um, especially I would say uh, probiotic. Um, mm-hmm. Yes, we can do prebiotic. We have done it too. But in my experience, in our lab experience, um, putting probiotic uh, in the feed and formulating based off of that and really getting a count if there's a any, kind of any, uh, for example, we mix a feed, um, you know, layers of the, the mash feed and then right. trying to get a recovery of that is very easy and send in a lab, third-party lab to find this analysis and I just getting a count of that lactobacillus or bacillus, whatever we feed in and we had a very success like just to back up our study, hey, this is what we got and that was we have been able to recover some and kind of down the gut and when we challenge these hands and looking into these interventions, I think probiotics would have kind of more success story like successful stories in my life but again of course i have also seen like one of the projects we did was combination with the pre and pro like a symbiotic effect mm-hmm. that was doing as good as that probiotic uh, treatment um we had in our study so what i'm trying to say here it depends on different um i guess in the mature layers in different ages what like what kind of challenge you're looking for think about practically so in, um, Salmonella outbreak could 
up like anywhere from a transfer of plates to lay house to all the way to she's trying to lay like the laying edge right that's very important because you just don't want to drop down your egg um also don't want to have a, a, a bad effect on the lot of mortality right but then more than a mortality i guess what it does is that especially in is, is that it affects the egg because that's a food safety issue and that's very important that is public health um, and that stuff in my experience in our lab we've been using this variety of anywhere from uh, a probiotic based off of a different bacteria um, all the way to prebiotic in their combination. So again, not again going, um, not saying prebiotics are bad, but really combination is what we're looking for. And then these are targeting different approaches because prebiotic would be helping to convert into breaking down into sorted fatty acids and then decrease the pH, which is not good for salmonella, then then you have this promotion going on for a good bacteria like a probiotic directly feeding that and then they help each other. I guess they kind of fill the gap. Um, the other area in this interested is I would say is that a window of challenge. So we've been doing these I mean, as early as day three um, fecal collection going from there and then maybe, you know how it takes that length of translocation to the organs. Right. It would not really do that fast because there's no use to get anything out and they I mean, kill the bone in day three or day two. Right. But then at least waiting that window five to seven days. And we've been right there always, as Devin said, day seven post-infection. Uh, we have always a lot of number in Sika, Salmonella. Mm. And if we can have that interventions, whatever we've been using, as for a problem, just just kind of information, right there, intervention. And now again, it's short chum, right? But then also you have to think about the long life of players. It comes and goes and comes and goes. Right. So They're that very is cyclical. yeah, that's the thing. Like short term interaction, great. I mean interventions is great. Mm -hmm. But then like that's my question to myself too. How long do you feed for? Do you only feed those because these are not antibiotics? Do you right. only feed when they are affected? And then like how long? I think this is a, the main question. Some of the studies though. Let me tell you um, an example. One of the study that we did is though like feeding these for a couple of weeks um, so that the birds get adapted to their diet and their system gets adapted. Then you produce this model there, like a challenge to give this higher dose of salmonella introduced and maybe looking that further that day seven post-infection or day 14 post-infection because you know how... Um, mature birds takes time to utilize everything and get adapted to it. So maybe that's what, as a prevention, again, it's as a prevention. Mm -hmm. That's why right. I see these interventions playing role in salmonella. Right. Yeah, but we do anything from a fecal collection, a look, looking into the log count or salmonella to all the way to internal organs, like secondary organs, and also doing, um, recently we've been also doing some microbiota study. Uh, looking into really like forget about the interventions, but prefer that history of the bar. Sometimes you have a vaccinated um, during the pullet lifetime, and then if you can find the microbiota of that bird versus unvaccinated, like because most of the time I grow the pullets here um, in our farm for the research purpose. Mm -hmm. Trying to look at differences, it's gonna be very, it's very interesting. Like they have a different set of population. Like not really totally different, but some of these um, species we're seeing is kind of maybe that constant immunity provided 
from vaccination would be different. So, so I, I've heard other people's theories on that. You know, the, the birds' microbiota is going to start, you know, based on their environment that they're, you know, initially in and that there really isn't much that you can do to change or alter it after that, that point. So I'm curious if, if what you're talking about in terms of the probiotics and iteratives, like if you see a shift, Mm -hmm. um, if our interventions really, really are making an impact on that, that microbiome um, that, that we all feel like is happening, or if they're, are other things that are making it shift or is the probiotic just merely having an impact on those salmonella numbers? No, that's, that's, that's exactly what I've been hearing and I've been reading. Um, the other thing is that, I mean, again, you know, for example, just the point just you said, there always uh, an environment effect and uh, the age effect, right? Mm-hmm. And then the smaller bird have a different microbiota because the microbiota right. become more diverse. Um, I mean, less specific, uh, more specific, less diverse when they grow up. But then also the other thing is that, you know, feed conversion ratio, when you talk about you know, even in pullets, stays in layers, or even in broilers, there has been research. Like, in fact, I was talking this and two weeks ago in the peak meeting in, in Minneapolis. So, right. yeah, there was yeah, a... So you're on the program there. <laughs> yeah, so there's a paper I was very interesting. So even for the feed conversion, there are there's a bacteria, Eurobacter, I forgot the species. They, it just affects there. Like, they are there. Like, for the birds, we have a higher feed conversion, have a higher number of that. Like, wow, it's already there. Because of just the presence of that yeah, one. absolutely. Yeah. So that might be something, even especially with the prebiotics and probiotic side, Looking into more microbiota and find that, finding that answer for that bacteria would be so cool. So cool. That would be. Mm-hmm. That would be. So, what research did you present at Peak? What did you speak on there? I was kind of uh, going into kind of background, a little review, kind of what is there in the current trend in a pre, pro, and symbiotics um, in poultry. We're focusing more in a pullets, uh, coccidiosis, and salmonella publications. And I was backing that up with some of these same like uh, challenge study that we have been doing over here, um, just giving my lab data there, to kind of showing what we have been doing so far. Perfect. Yeah, that that meeting is well attended by the turkey and layer industry. So yes, yes. I'm sure your talk was well attended by the layer <laughs> folks so. there. It was a yeah. full house. It was good. <laughs> yeah, that that meeting has really grown. Um, in my first job, I worked in tech service, and I used to go to that that meeting a lot. Um, and I remember it would either be halfway decent weather, or it was like awful, like snow and sleeting. It was um, great weather. Just so good. <laughs> I mean, yes. I was surprised too. I mean, it was in April. We had a little bit of cold weather here, and then like it right. was the eighties. So it does. Wow. Perfect. Perfect. You don't get that Minnesota. So good. Well, I'm glad you had a good peak experience. Um, (laughs) Yeah. So I know another um, piece of your research has to do with um, uh, sort of like calcium and shell quality and limestone. I know that um, I, I, I've ran across this, that like, there's only so much limestone in the world and, and eventually we're going to, you know, have, issues of sustainability. Um, so I think that, that you look a lot in your research on, okay, what's exactly the right amounts in terms of ratios and how layers best use it. Um, so as we're trying to preserve shell quality, what is your research um, shown to help support there? Yeah, it was very interesting research. It was, in fact, uh, one of my uh, master's students, she uh, defended last month and 
She's starting PhD in my lab, so it's very nice. exciting. Good to keep a graduate me. student. That's uh-huh. good. Retention, right? Yes, you like, you like to keep them. So. Yeah, she's a good one. So we did a study. It was a 40 weeks study. And it was so before that, let me back up a little bit. So we had a, a prelim study before this, like two years ago. Um, a very different ratio. So you can think of anywhere from your 100% fine for a mature layer to the 100% course. So in that, so we had 35, 65, that's a kind of uh, inclusion, like fine to the your course ratio. So 35, 65, then we have 25, 75, this is gaps, right? Then we have this uh, 15, 85, and then the zero and 100%. Um, particle size. So then we looked into that. I'm gonna. I'm not gonna take a lot of time. I'm gonna have a what we saw. So it was right. very interesting. We had two types of feeding. So now think about four different levels of ratio in the particle size. It was a factorial design, and then you have this conventional type feeding and split feeding. So what we did for each of these, we have for one group. Uh, put everything. So it was a measured amount of feed. So the her of hand. Okay. Eat like 100 grams a day, which is kind of giving every day 100 grams. So we have been yeah. very specific as it could be. So in the morning at 7 a.m. or 6 a.m., when the light comes in the hen house, pretty much we student and student workers, they're feeding this bird up. That's one group, right? That's everything, your 100 grams is given up in the morning. Then the second treatment was with each of these different ratio I just talked about, uh, giving these um, 50 grams in the morning when the light is on, and saving that 50 gram to give later in the day. So okay. it's very, it was a very intensive, a little bit longer study, a lot of work. But what we saw, which uh, very interesting, was 1585, your know, 15 fine and 85 course um, mm-hmm. had a very better TVA breaking strength. In fact, it was similar to your 2575 ratio too. Okay. Now, this is the thing. We did not use um, super dose of phytis or, you know, like more phytis. And that is, it was a different factor, right? There was not, that was done. Then we got this result and I looked into this and then ran the data like, okay, what could we learn from this data that could be your follow-up? So then I decided to go for this um, because, you know, Course limestone, fine limestone, there's not any difference in the price. So it's it's fine. This is kind of how the hands utilize. So I thought we thought maybe discussing with that previous student, 1585 is the thing to choose. And in fact, it was funded by US Gen Ed project. Right. It's the new the, the second concept that second I'm going part. to tell you. Yeah. So this is my, this was my idea. 1585, then we have this, and then we have a control industry standard, they say, like a 4060, doesn't matter. You, Mm-hmm. She's always you can even feed that throughout our life. We don't have to increase that to higher. So that was our control, and we maintained that over in one of the group. Then the other was looking in the phytase interaction. So I think that was a kind of new concept, and it was funded by US Poultry. And that was very interesting. So in this study, the second one, we found uh, that actually the there is something when you have this five super dose level, and when I say super dose, we provided fifteen hundred FTE per kilogram. Okay. Uh, I, I work with one of the uh, biggest enzyme company, and so they were excited about this data too. So you know, this super dose level, when you look into the just only that, it did increase the bone quality. Like okay. in fact, we're looking into more into CT scan data. So we saw that. 
when you have this super dose level, but then with a lower ratio, then that will just be fine. But then when you have that both higher, um, they were not doing that good. So there is something still going on with that level and then the particle size. The other thing is that, yes, our standard level was 400 ATU per kilogram, and that was fine with the higher um, uh, higher amount of your course particles. So that was very fascinating. <laughs> so we had a lot of data in this study. We did all the way from your performance data. We had these um, egg mass collected in production data, um, feed conversion ratio. We weighed these um, bird, I mean, not the bird, the feed every week. So it was a weekly feed conversion. And also we did um, at the end of these 20 weeks. So it was kind of uh, like an early lay and then late lay, we sample these hands to look into the digestibility too, um, and also in situ levels. So that was what we were trying to find an answer on, more in the gut health side. Like, you know how a phytate molecule breaks down and goes to different in situ, um, just to get that last ester. And um, <clears throat> so in fact, that was very interesting that in gizzard and then in the ileum, these uh, three and four were pretty high. So they're kind of releasing more. So it just tells a little bit more on the um, details in the gut side. So I think that was very interesting. The other thing is that um, we had a lot of, um, I think that was kind of not a good data. We had um, a lot of like unsellable eggs, which means when I say unsellable, like uh, soft shell eggs, especially with that higher, higher combination. So definitely, I would say like a um, no, no, like really like 1585 and then that 1500 FTE um, may not something that I would recommend. <laughs> I mean, there could be something that you can recommend. There's some that you do not recommend. <laughs> so right. that's what I could, I could say. Somewhere in there is the exact right, right level. Yes. But looking at the, um, again, going to your question of the shell strength, I could see that application being more into the definitely the higher level of the course, but then staying with that 400, 600 FTU uh, per kilogram um, of the phytes would be just be fine. But when you want to go more into the gut health, gut side, like a, what's going on inside, like a gizzard, like a breakdown of that um, inositol and going with the ileum, who knows? I mean, there could be some follow up there in the future, find more there. So then, um, in, in terms of do, you know, looking for, for the phytate and then, um, so in this second sort of follow-up study, uh, you, you were mentioning, you, you know, you measured these sort of breakdown products, but then did you also look at bone strength again with, with those, with that part of the study? And did you find differences there as well? Yes, we did. In fact, I was just going to actually talk about um, that student project and I was just kind of pulling here if you just don't mind. <laughs> yeah, we had a very interesting data, especially your uh, bone ash, not just the total ash, Karen, but going to this micro, you know how you have a mineral combination in the ash and going to this smaller dress mineral like copper. Right, copper, mag manganese. Yeah, like, so yeah. something is going on. I mean, in eggshell, when you think about it, in that layer has an egg part and you have a bone part, right? Both are very equally important because you just mm -hmm. don't want that um, mineral or calcium to be pulled out of your structural bone because you're right. laying, right? So what I would- time. Just use that bone for a long time. Absolutely, absolutely. So yeah. what is more exciting, which we never did it 
this kind of analysis before. We usually just say, okay, TV ash, a total ash, and you just have to go from there, right, um, to find the strength quality. But then here, this time we did, okay, let's do as much detail. So very interesting is that your copper, and I'm giving the example of copper, is with our, um, that 40, 60, uh, which you have 45 and 60 cores, and with the 400, which is our standard level, it has a significantly high content of copper. So yeah, and manganese is another one. So it's very interesting. So we're still trying to find that out. One study leads to another study. This yeah, is the way these always. things work. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah, and then the other is a micro city data from bone. So we look at this trabecular number. So you know how you do just all about the scanning and then you have this total number you want to look for. And that number was kind of really higher when you had this 1585 ratio though. That is something good part also. That's good. Uh-huh. So perhaps that ratio of, you know, more coarse, you know, it stays longer and then they're able when they're laying down that, you know, bone, they're they're able to to pull from that store more. Exactly. And then like we did not see any difference between our uh that level, even though a level increase mm-hmm. you just didn't I mean the five days of and there's no cost difference because you were saying the course and the fine are the same no. cost. Yeah. In fact, I just realized that last, like, very recently I was talking to, hey, I thought course would be expensive. Like, no. Like, okay. <laughs> Interesting. That would be, that would be great. To, mm-hmm. You know, I, I think that any fine tuning, I think we've gotten to the science part of being able to fine tune these things. And I think your research really backs that up of, okay, this has always just been our accepted ratio. Mm-hmm. Maybe this isn't exactly the best, like we can do better because like you said, and there's differences in genetic lines because the genetic lines keep changing. Yep. And if they, you know, shift from one thing to, to another, then, you know, things are always changing and evolving. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. Well, I I think you have a lot of really exciting things going on in your lab, and it's great that you're keeping um, graduate students. Um, If you had advice for um, students or professionals that were wanting to get into specifically poultry nutrition, what advice would you give them? Okay, that's a very good question. I think nutrition is an area that still needs to be explored, and this is very fascinating. I'm not saying because I love nutrition and poultry nutritionists. Every job, every field is very fascinating. But what about nutrition is you are working directly with the genetics. So you are going that side by side because genetics are kind of far up. They say, okay, we have done the selection. We claim that our bird does X, Y, Z. We have selected against a best FCR bar, right? And like baked egg production. She lays over 365 eggs. But then also we're like, okay, that is fine. But then what is proven? Like what happens in her quality? Yes, we know we she produces egg every day. But then what happens to that egg? Like quality-wise, like not the quality-wise. Right. Especially as they get to, you know. Uh-huh. 80, yeah. 90 weeks. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I'm, I'm saying an example of layer, right? But then also same goes with the bowlers or turkeys. Like, I think for a student who want to do nutrition course, when they, they should know when they are in undergrad, which, I mean, may not be in their sophomore or freshman, but then at least they should know by junior um, 
grade a level like okay this is what i want to do and started working and start going to these kind of meetings scientific we have tons of those it doesn't matter talk to your advisor go do a dis course that's something i would suggest them to do because you learn a lot from that undergraduate project like at least it doesn't have to be perfect but you learn how to do kind of maybe research then it could be a short-term project then you can go present that somewhere in a scientific conference then you get that um, idea connection how people do it then then you have a plan that, okay this is what i have seen maybe a, a small portion of it and i want to go and do a big picture of it i think that's how you could just be very do a good you'd be a good nutrition student because it's so hard to make everything teach with I have a lot of students come from different backgrounds. Some are veterinarians, um, some are um, some have done DIS project in undergraduate, right? But then also I'm saying it will be only benefit that student that is coming from that background. So that's what I would say. Networking is very important. It doesn't matter in undergrad or graduate, even for us, right? So yeah, and there's a lot of opportunity. You can go everywhere from a sales side to all the way to a technical director side. So um, I think there's a lot of things to learn. And this is only happening because we have these, um, again, going to the genetics and have these things changing so much. And then going, this industry is going so in a faster rate. And then we have to feed and make sure that's also economic. And just to, there's a couple of points here and you are trying to find out maybe a solution there. And we have always a demand for a nutritionist. <laughs> Absolutely. There's always demand. You have to you have to feed the animals to feed the world, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. It's time for our famous three. The Poultry Podcast Show is only possible with the support and trust of innovative companies like DSM, helping customers with efficient, sustainable poultry production. AB Vista offers pioneering products and technical services tailored to the poultry industry to help them succeed. Adaseo provides nutritional solutions and services to help producers achieve their targets in high quality, safe, and sustainable way. Your partner for improving animal performance, Berg and Schmidt. A worldwide leader in animal nutrition, Adaseo's portfolio of products includes methionine, the full range of vitamins, enzymes, organic selenium, probiotics, mycotoxin management strategies, and palatability products. With such a diverse offering, Adaseo supports its customers with a broad range of expertise, tools, and services to help them maintain a competitive advantage. Adaseo, fueling predictable profits. To learn more, visit Adaseo at www.adaseo.com. Um, so not necessarily from a nutrition standpoint, in, in terms of your journey into academia and, you know, being kind of an early career scientist, what are some tools that you find useful in terms of like developing, um, like if it's a book, oh, I read this, this was really helpful to me, or I went to a certain kind of class or what's, what's been really helpful to you as an early career scientist? Yeah, so what I do is like most of the time, <clears throat> so what I have learned is through this um, podcast. So I listen a lot of those podcasts, not just a 40 podcast itself, but then, um, you know, anything. From a, what are some examples? Like give our listeners, like what's your favorite podcast to listen to? Actually, I don't have a name of it. <laughs> How oh. about that? But then okay. I also want to listen like a success stories of the people. 
how to do a leadership like a, I'm so much interested in leadership so I don't know where I would go down the road <laughs> but then right. I always love to learn how to manage a small to a big group and you know you don't know so many things and I've not been able to do any kind of leadership course yet but I feel like that's kind of my path to go but what I do is kind of listen there like especially a one-to-one conversation you know talking about your personal experience, you know, people share their ideas and people talk about this, what has been really been working and doing and it really works. It doesn't have to be a, a you know, a, a scientific podcast, right? It could be anything for your life from coming from your personal experience. So that kind of talk, um, I always love to listen and I get motivated. I think that's what makes me motivated. And I do that every time morning, not every time, but most of the time, morning and then, um, evening when I, Back, I come to work and then return from there. So the other is also managing the, um, I would not say stress. Yeah, everybody has a stress. It's a different part of it. But like how to manage a work-life balance because you really have to find that, um, I don't know, find that, um, I mean, state, but find a, a, a position there so that you are not overloading your work and then not like balancing your life. So that is, I don't have an answer, <laughs> but that's something else. <laughs> I was going to say, if you found the keys to that one, I yeah, would, you know, listen to your podcast because I think we all struggle. Yeah, um, that's what I listen to. We all struggle with work life balance. I think that, um, you know, sort of post. Everybody keeps blaming everything on post-COVID, but I, I think we all overworked ourselves because there was no going to or leaving work. Like we just, we were at home and we worked. And then I think that has continued. Like we, we just keep doing the same kind of schedule. And I think you have to set those boundaries again. Of, uh, yeah, absolutely. You know, yeah. I work Monday to Friday. I work these hours, um, but it always spills over because you have responsibilities that kind of take like your work time. Yeah. Like you you have a teaching percentage. So you teach class. That's no longer your work time. You're, you're teaching. So. Yeah. And the other thing is that you just not wait for, okay, nine to five or eight to five when you work, but then also think about how could you really do a better job sometime, you know, for me, you know, for example, writing a manuscript, I would be just kind of sitting in my desk with just do nothing for, um, I mean, I'm not surprised for a whole day, which kind of writing a sentence or two. Yeah. So you just have to think about that, not drifting too much. Like how could you do constantly make you that kind of podcast, anything that would help me to build up my um, letter of personal, I mean, the professional life would be great. So, yeah. So I would not have example, but I would have some example like, um, you know, movies. Yeah. Some examples that are, again, life motivating movies. I love to watch them. <laughs> Keep you inspired. Yeah. Yeah. So I would awesome. say. Awesome. Yeah. Well, uh, Dr. Adhikari, we really appreciate you joining us today on the poultry podcast show. And I hope everyone listening has learned um, some good pieces of information on layer nutrition and more research to come. Um, out of uh, Dr. Adhikari's lab there at Mississippi State. So we will look out for your upcoming uh, publications. Thank you, Karen. And thank you so much for the opportunity. Um, it's really feels great just to be out there and they know about, people know about layer research here in Mississippi State. And yeah, if you all have any questions, reach out to me, my personal way. There's a personal website and also there's a university email address. So thank you for the opportunity, Karen. 
Awesome. Awesome. Uh, Everybody enjoy this episode and we'll uh, see you next time. Thank you. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.